Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Our next guest is a diva par excellence, though, as she explains in her next movie, uh, in her current movie, she's a little behind on her diva lessons. (laughs) Although I think that having seen her two movies before, uh, she, um, her mother who has a cult following all her own based on her <laughs> depictions of her mother, you know, is a diva already who goes out and greets the crowd and says, I'm so famous. <laughs> this is one of the things apparently people don't necessarily impersonate Margaret Cho. They impersonate Margaret Cho impersonating her mother. So, will you please welcome All-American Girl. Her current movie is called Notorious C-H-O. Margaret Cho to West Coast Live. Thank you very much for coming into the show. Thank you very much. So, what to be a full-fledged diva? I mean, what do you what do you feel you're lacking? Well, I'm really not a very good diva. I mean, I cut my own hair with kitchen scissors. So, I mean, I just don't have all of the attributes of divaism, you know, and that 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 I'm very low maintenance and I don't take a lot of prescription drugs and I I don't have. Um, certain demands, like, all white roses in my dressing room. You know, no, I don't have any of that. I, I, I just don't, don't really put on any airs. But your mother. She does. Yeah. She puts on a lot of airs. Actually, she was at the, um, at the premiere of the film, Notorious CHO, here in San Francisco at the uh, Gay and Lesbian International Film Festival. And she arrived, and she was wearing a very grand uh, traditional Korean gown. And, um, you know, she just has this air about her. She just, you know, has cultivated this incredible grace by watching J-Lo. <laughs> and so, you know, she, she's, she's very dignified. And, and, you know, when she stood up, I introduced her and she was in the audience. And the audience went crazy. And they were just stamping their feet and really going insane over her, which is great because she's <laughs> adorable. And um, when, when she's in San Francisco, you know, when I'm performing here, she'll come to the shows and uh, she talks about it in the film where she'll go to uh, the bathroom and talk to people in the bathroom and, you know, say, thank you so much for coming to see my daughter. I'm so glad that you came to the show, you know, and she, she will say this and people think, oh, she's so gracious. But really, when she sees somebody, she realizes that that, that has made me Forty dollars. So <laughs> she, she's very conscious. So she's forty dollar. There's forty dollar and forty dollar. There's one hundred and twenty dollar. <laughs> so she's she's an opportunist, really. And your your father gave a very sweet statement about coming to this country, and and he said, I one of the very good things about immigrating to this country is that I uh, my daughter has been able to find a platform to speak. And it was a wonderful statement, very moving and very sincere statement from your father. You don't make fun of him as much as your mother. Well, I think that um, in a way I combine them because they're, uh, they're, they're kind of similar in the way that they speak. And so I do kind of mix them up. But I, I especially enjoy my mother telling stories about my father. So I just think that they can really only handle one person from my family. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he also seems kind of protected in a way by you. He is protected um, 
in a in a sense, I suppose. But except for that picnic he had in Korea. Well, well, I mean, I I, I do I do really adore my father because he's just so an interesting. You know that he um, here he is a very conservative Korean gentleman in his sixties, and yet his best friend is um, a forty-ish gay gentleman from Britain who is tattooed over three-fourths of his body. You know, and that's San Francisco. Really, that's, that's like the kind of friendships that the city is about. You know, just the, the strangest combinations and the most unlikely duos. I was uh, in, the, in the room in, in New York City when you received a, a special award, a Lambda Award, and your mother stood up and was there. The two of you seem to be touring together a lot. Yeah, um, we're the new Judds. We, are, <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we have replaced the Judds as the, the new first family yeah. of country music. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you ever find her sort of edging out toward the stage? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I actually really encourage her to go out there, too. I mean, she's a little bit shy. It's like she, she's shy, and then when she's out there, she does beautifully. So she's a natural. She, she seems to be. She carries herself like in, in that diva-esque, you know, kind of way. Yeah, well, my mother's very rebellious. You know, she's um, amazing. My, my mother uh, is from a very powerful political family in Korea, and um, they, uh, th- the, her parents had arranged her in a marriage when she was very young, like 19 years old, and, and um, she was in love with my father, and she, she refused the arranged marriage. And... Uh, married my father because she loved him, which is like completely unheard of in, you know, that society at the time. So she's, she's always kind of been a rebel in that way. I mean, I, I think they should bring back arranged marriage personally. I, I would prefer an arranged marriage at this point. <laughs> there's, there, there's, there's a, without giving away too much material from your movie, using, uh, you wanted to have a marriage, um, you, you saw marriage as being kind of like a tattoo. Well, yeah, it's like I, I want one, but I can't decide on, you know, who or what, and I don't want to be stuck with something that right. I'm going to grow to hate right. and, uh, and have to have surgically removed later. Right. Right. So my, my, my whole thing is why can't I have a henna husband? Right. Which so that seems to go against the idea of an arranged marriage, though. Well, I mean, I just think that uh, I, I'm really, I make bad choices. You know, and I would like my choices made for me from now on. <laughs> but your bad choices result in comedy. That's true. So uh, Then the, there would go your material. Well, there could be maybe. different material. Uh-huh. You know, there could be different. I don't know. I mean, it, it, there could be a different, a whole different thing. You know, I could be the new, new spokesperson for family values. <laughs> right? That could be good. You, you do speak up on families of all kinds. Right. Yes. And, um, you know, my, my family's very important to me. My family really represents the Asian-ness of me as where I am very American. So I think that that's a, that's a pretty interesting cultural thing that if you're brought up in this country and you're from an immigrant family, you really want to make fun of your parents because they're so foreign and that is so odd. And, and so there's this, there's this incredible embarrassment. I was so embarrassed by my mother you know, when I was growing up, I'm, I used to be like really angry at her for being so Korean. And I'm like, you know, and, um, you know, one example of it is uh, whenever I needed Elmer's glue for a school project, she would say, oh, why don't you just use rice? You can use a little bit of rice and then put it inside it. Very sticky. Use all rice. And I would be like, why can't we have American glue? And, you know, run to my room. <laughs> 
I hate you, mom. And and I didn't really accept her for a long time. But I, I always like kind of made fun of her with my other Asian American friends. And they would make fun of their parents to me. And I think that's really how we really assimilated into this country in a sense. Because we become American by ridic ridiculing and sort of like lessening the effect of the, the Korean culture. But, but now you've decided to go back to your roots and there's nothing but rice glue in your house, right? I have so much rice glue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your, your movie is preceded with a, a little animated bit where you, where you talk uh, uh, in, in kind of a group therapy session with uh, uh, a black character and a, and a Korean shopkeeper dealing with issues of, of hate and, and uh, racial intolerance. And I mean, at what point do you find that uh, you want to make your comedy the political statement, uh, you know, that's, uh, to make it political and, and sort of break out from people who are very supportive of your ideas to actually changing people's minds? Well, it's interesting. I mean, as a minority artist, I don't really often have the luxury to just be so-called secular about my work. Like, I can't really pull out the political nature of what I do because of what I'm doing because I am who I'm who's doing it is political. So um, to talk about things like race is pretty important to me because I have a, a different perspective on it. And I think that if I didn't talk about it, what else would I talk about? You know, um, it's a strange thing. I, I, I do feel some responsibility to deal with those things. But at the same time, I also want to kind of keep it as light as I can. So, but I, I like using animation because you can do, you know, because the, there's this, this is a cartoon basically about a very serious conflict between black and Korean people in the inner city. I mean, that's like a big deal in Los Angeles and, and in New York and in a lot of places. It's, it's, you know, there's a lot of violence, a lot of tension there. And to be able to go at something like that, this social problem with something as harmless as a cartoon, I think really is, is very exciting. So... I, I do, I do want to do more of that. It's the subversion of comedy. By, by laughing at these issues, ideas get through and they kind of get in. Right, you can diffuse some of the anger around it if you're, if you're making fun of it or if you're talking about it intelligently in a way that's also funny. How did you, what was the genesis of your, of your current show? How did you begin to work up the material? Uh, is, there, is there a lot of stuff that changed as you were doing your tryouts of it? Um, no. Um, th what what happened is I, I think I went through a year of just collecting different stories that were that were interesting to me, and um, I was doing a lot of different things in my life at the time. I was in a lot of different relationships that you know I, that really created a lot of <laughs> drama material and material, <laughs> and um, you know I needed to somehow kind of like deal with that. So. Is is there a, a a double track going on in your mind sometimes in the middle of a drama thinking? Oh, I could use this. No, I can't use that. Yeah, I mean, there is. There, absolutely. And, you know, I've done things and I've talked about things on stage where people get so mad at me. And I've really, like, literally lost friendships because people just couldn't believe that I would reveal that about them. But then most people really enjoy it. So because they feel famous or something, or they feel like, oh, that's me. I'm that guy, you know, and they, they love it. So, you know, I, I always... Um, want to tell the truth in my work and I always want to push myself to tell the truth because that's the kind of work that I enjoy watching. I don't really get a lot of joy out of uh, television because it seems very false to me. You know, things that are out there just sort of seem like these writing exercises that don't make any sense and I don't care. But I, I, I really enjoy true stories. And that was something that was a frustration for you in your television show. Oh yeah, well there were so many frustrations, you know, working. It, you could make a whole monologue, I bet, yeah, about I it. Did. Yeah, I know. And, and, <laughs> A book, and you know, I mean that that uh, 
that was one of the worst things, you know, because here I was trying to um, work and be a different kind of artist and, and really push myself and, and uh, do edgy work. And, and then I was being pegged as the new blossom, you know, the sort of the cherry blossom or whatever, that, that sort of like Chinese or Korean. They didn't even care, you know, like whatever you are, just be Asian, you know, and uh, be really cute and be really small and, and just do it, do it, do it. And I, I just, could, I just could, couldn't do it. I, I really crumbled. When you, uh, but when you were trying out, also, I, I was interested in, I mean, so much of, of your comedy is also in the facial expressions and the timing mm -hmm. of your piece. And when you sort of reveal the punchline or the phrase that kind of ties everything back up, is this something that you find comes intuitively to you? Or do you watch an audience, you wait for its reaction, you develop the, the timing? Well, you know what that comes from is, um, you know, I started doing comedy when I was 16 years old, and then I started getting these gigs at colleges where you would have to do an hour of material in, in front of, you know, you know, hundreds of kids. And, and I only had like 10 minutes. So um, I, I, would, I would just like tell a joke and then wait as long as I could until the laughter had completely died. And the, you know, sometimes I would get like two or three laughs because I wasn't saying anything else. So they would keep laughing and keep laughing. And, and then I, I, I discovered timing that way because I had to stretch. That was a total thing, but then I then I realized that if you take your time with things, and people can really hear it, and so that's not really, you know, I have some more material now, but I, I have a, <laughs> I, I discovered that through. So your 90-minute movie, I mean, you've got it padded with a little animation at the beginning, little a little behind-the-scenes stuff mm -hmm. before and after, some talks to the audience, right? And so really, it's it's probably a good 45-minute set, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> Solidly 40. It, there are people who come out of the theaters doing impersonations of, of you, people who, who it's, it's like their way of saying hello to you, is to, to do one of your routines, one of your faces. No, it's great. I mean, it's really uh, wonderful. People really remember a lot of things, and, and they become, what's, what, what's my favorite thing is a lot of things that I've done become kind of private jokes between friends, you know, and they have them with each other, and I love that, that they can share stuff like that. You watch Mr. Bean at all? No. You know, you know Mr. Bean? I know Mr. Bean. Yeah. You know, he's always doing the, the funny faces. <laughs> he's very, the faces, but I... Uh, well, Rowan Atkinson, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm a more of a black adder person myself. Uh, oh, right, right, sure. So, Mr. Bean is a little modern for me. A little modern? I'm somewhat of a Luddite, see, <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to Rowan Atkinson. Right, well, black adder, I mean, he's certainly a more vicious character than yeah. the benign Mr. Bean. Yeah, and I like that big collar thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you, uh, so you do watch a little television? Yeah, I do. I, I watch um, a lot. You know what I, I really like is the stuff that's on HBO. Like I, my favorite show right now is probably Six Feet Under, which is a really great television show. Because it's, you know, it's, it deals with his family and they, they have a um, mortuary. And, it, and it's very interesting because it's not really about death, even though it's all about sort of the death industry. It's actually about relationships. And I love the women on that show. Just really develop women characters and uh, a lot of truth there. Well, you know what they say about HBO. It's not television. No. <laughs> you know. It's HBO. Right, 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 right. No, uh, and they do... Boy, they got a free plug right yeah, there. Yeah, they do. They do really great um, documentaries. I mean, they're the, the best. Uh, some of the things that they do, you know, really great documentaries and, and um, just just really kind of on top of it in terms of programming, so... When you, when you watch another show or somebody else's stand-up routine, uh, do you study how the, the transitions are made, where there's a, a juncture in the material... How you figure out how to shift a topic 
yourself? Actually, no. I, I'm pretty lucky because I can really lose myself in a comedian. You know, I can really just get into it and forget the mechanics of what they're doing and forget all of that because I, I'm so... I'm so enthralled by them, you know. Right. I, you know, people like Chris Rock really excite me, and I, I love Sandra Bernhardt. She's great. And you know, my, you know, way back when I, I think my favorites were like Roseanne or Rosie O'Donnell. Even is a great comedian. So it, it, I, I keep really get lost in it. I don't, I don't feel like I'm so much of a technician. Do you find that you feel freer with your material the more well known you become? I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't know if it makes me freer. I think that it just. Um, I, I. I think my my feeling now is that I always want to do better work. That I always want to top myself, which is hard because I set a really high standard for what I do, and then to go back and then do something better. You know. So now I finish this show, and I have the new show that I have to write now, and I'm at the very beginning. I have no idea what it's about. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I do know that it has to be ready to go on Broadway in a year. So this is like the huge pressure because it takes me exactly a year to write a show. So this is like a, a signed deal deadline you've got? Yeah, I have a dead. I mean, it, and that's kind of like how I have to do it because or else I just won't do it. I have to actually put the deadline in place or, uh -huh. you know, force myself to, to get out there. And w when you get closer and closer, is that when you, is, is it, uh, you do more of your material the closer you get? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it begins slowly, it builds slowly and then I'll, I'll do, um, I'll do a couple of different smaller shows, like all around, uh, all around the world, you know, and uh, and and develop it there and, and um, see what works and throw things out and put things in. Have you taken your show to Korea? No, but my film has gone there. My film was translated and taken there, and also my book has been translated and taken there. So are they literal, actual translations? They are literal translations, which I don't know. I don't know what that's going to be, you know, what's because it's so comedy is so culturally specific. It's very difficult to take something from here and take it over there, you know. Even if it's still an English-speaking country, you know, to work in Britain is still very difficult for me. So I don't know, um, I don't know how it will be received there. They have a very different view on women, a very different view on sexuality, which is a lot of what I deal with. A very different view on homosexuality. I I don't know how it, it could be perceived. I mean, you know, who knows. And so you haven't had any response yet from the film in Korea? Um, uh, no, I mean, I, I don't know yet. You know, I think that they're still trying to figure it out. Well, they, they've still got to get over the World, world Cup, you know, and that now. <laughs> so they've got to you, did you follow the World Cup? I did. I stayed up a couple of nights and I watched, and, um, and it was great and created very well. They were third, uh, which is amazing, because they've never even, you know, gotten that high up before. And... Um, it was very exciting to watch the, 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 the fans were so elated. Even my father. See, my father at the premiere of the film here in San Francisco, when, when I was introducing him in the audience, he like got up and he had a World Cup towel in his lap and he held it up like this. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. Dad! And it, was, it was really like he was showing his support, showing you know, all of the gays that he was into the World Cup. <laughs> Of course, they were very excited for him, too. So, yeah. Well, it's all those guys running around in shorts, you know? It's, yeah, we love it. Yeah. But the, um, the Korean guys all had really long hair. They all had, like, long hair. It made me think that they must have perms because they were curly-haired. And I've never really seen that many curly-haired Koreans. Are they going for the Brazilian look, do you yeah, think? Yeah, they all sort of wanted to look like the Italian team the with, the, with the flowing hair kind of parted in the middle and just, you know, very 
loose and it, it's a it's a it's a it's a well-known sports technique you know if you look like another team you will be that yeah. other team in a way. yeah you can fool them yeah, you can fool them. It's right. like the alexander technique or something you know <laughs> You know, or the acting, the method acting. Koreans have a love of hair affair with the hair, with the curly hair, but we don't have it. This is not my hair. This is a wig. <laughs> it is. Really? Yeah, it's a total. It's a full-on wig. What What do you have under it? Nothing. Yeah. You You go for the shaved head look. Well, it, I, this part is not a wig, mm-hmm. but this part is a full wig. That's a That's a complete wig. Yeah. Yeah. See, it's a wig. I'll even. See, it's a wig. Wow. I really... That's a beautiful reveal on radio. I know. Well, this is how, like, low-rent diva I am. I mean, I'm so... I don't even... I have no vanity. I don't care. I'll take my wig off. See? Perfect. So was this because you were cutting your hair with kitchen shears you decided to put this on? Yeah, I messed it up. Yeah. I can't see the back very good, and so then I made it kind of like that, and then I was like, oh, I better get a wig or something. Well, why worry about it if you can't see it, right? I know, but then... I'm around a lot of gay men who get really upset. <laughs> you know, <laughs> girl, you did not do that with your hair. And they're like, they're like, oh my God. And they like start crying and stuff and then trying to deal with it with scissors. And I just don't want to upset my fans. <laughs> but you also must enjoy the attention. I do. Yeah. No, it's great. It is great. And then you get your hair fixed up, right? Yeah, well, not really. I don't like sitting in a salon. See, I don't like the mechanics and the politics of beauty culture. It really bothers me that it's so expensive to get your hair cut, and you have to sit there, and there's so many options of things to do. And, and you know, it, it's just very oppressive to me. It's like I would rather just be reading a book or, you know, going and do something productive as opposed to, like, really paying attention to the way that I look because ultimately it doesn't really make my life any better. So you're talking about the, the global politics and the objectification. Of the, you're not talking about the intra-salon politics that go on about no, who has what share. That's a whole share. different thing. Yeah. That's a whole... But that's more entertaining. Yeah, but no, the, there's the whole, the whole idea that, you know, um, women are constantly focused to turn into and turn on to beauty culture. That it is a huge part of our persona in America especially, and um, that um, all of the literature, like women's magazines for the most part, are all about beauty, you know, and that there's like one or two political magazines. We want to get news. We don't have very many options, and we, we just have to go to like a news source. We can't have something that's specifically for women. I mean, there's Ms., and there's a couple of different political magazines for women, but for the most part, it, you would think that all women care about our hair and clothes and, and thinness and diet and all of this stuff. And, and um, it's very frustrating to me. You know, I get very frustrated because I talk to a lot of young women and uh, women in college and younger than that who have eating disorders. You know, and they're perfectly beautiful girls, but they're not presented with images of real-looking women in the media. So they look at the women out there and they think, that's what I'm supposed to look like. That's what I have to look like to achieve power. You know, this... This idea that thinness equals power is such a common one for these young women and for a lot of women my age as well. So I get very angry with that. So I try to reject it within myself as much as I can by wearing a wig. So. <laughs> and and your, your mother's idea of heaven. Right. Yeah, my mother, my mother has, you know, she and I both have terrible eating disorders because of this, you know, kind of conflict and, and um, so she would always say to me, your mommy's idea of heaven is a big buffet where you never get full and you never get fat. Ah! 
And um, yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, me too, I have to say. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, no, the, the sort of eating problem, I love talking about my eating problem because it sort of makes me feel better about it because I realize I think p people relate to me when I, I, I really hate the fact that I've had these problems with eating, but it's because I have like so been messed up by culture. I've been so messed up by MTV, you know, that, that I just didn't have enough feminism to, to you know, eat. and I grew up in San Francisco and not enough feminism. That's like, you, but I didn't have enough feminism to combat mm -hmm. what, I have to deal with, or what I was bombarded with as well, a child. Well, we also, also simultaneously have a culture that reveres food and honors food, and, and there right. are publications like Gourmet, which are kind of like food porn, you know, centerfolds right. of beautiful, you know, legs of lamb and gateau of chocolate and lemon. Yeah, you know. yeah, the, the heavenly marriage of chocolate and raspberry. Yes. You know, that there, that there, are, yeah, there's a kind of pornography. I mean, I, that's sort of like what I think. Um, I, I love kind of like being sexual with pornography as, a, as, I, as I like it even, you know, because it's the same thing as like eating while watching the Food Network. You know, that's like, it's the same thing. You know? I guess it is. It's exactly the same thing. I like food porn better though. Yeah. Food porn is really great. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what the best is? Savour. Ooh. That's a good magazine. That's a, a savour. Well, that's a, that's a intellectual magazine about food, is it not? Yeah. So that's sort of like food erotica, yeah. as opposed to. And you read it for the articles. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whether whereas like Better Homes and Gardens is kind of like hustler, you know? That's like. <laughs> There's a uh, and so late at night on the Food Network, what might you get? Um, late at night on the Food Network. Well, I always like I always like Iron Chef. Oh yeah, sure. Iron Chef is great. That's, it's a combination of wrestling and food. We liked it much better in the original version when it was subtitled and it was in Japanese. Oh yeah, because yeah. The, the, the actors that are saying the, the sort of translation sounds so weird and chipper. I know. You know. Oh look, they're taking the trout sliver and they're balancing them on their nose. <laughs> I yeah. know. I can't believe he made that all out of caviar. <laughs> you know, and they, they like put in the laughs and everything and it's just very false to me. Yeah. It's not true in the way that you like, I like true stories. I like the truth. But I like the guy in the beginning, the big dandy who runs it all with the big sort of like flouncy thing and he bites that big bell pepper and it's just so exciting. You know, Kaga is his name. Kaga. Yeah, we learned a little something about him some years ago. He, uh, he starred, is that what means our time is, what, no? Kaga, uh, Kaga was a star in a Japanese production of uh, West Side Story. Oh, really? Yeah. Was he a shark or a jet? Well, he was the male lead. What was that, a shark Tony? or a jet? Tony? He was Tony. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a really good show. And I love it when they have white people on because it makes it even more exciting because it's very stacked then, you know? <laughs> so, like, when Bobby Flay is on, it's like, you know, it's pretty much like Japan against America. Yeah. And so there was a, a group of people who followed the, the, uh, uh, the Iron Chef, and whenever a certain internal organ meat or something was used, it was reason to take a glass of absinthe or a vodka or something it was a it was like it was like quarters yeah like they were yeah. playing quarters yeah yeah but, yeah but with body yeah but if they if, if you know if liver or lungs or any other sort of viscera was mentioned awful 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 awful, awful? awful was awful? mentioned it was time to take a drink hmm that's interesting so i can see how it could lead to a drinking disorder yeah because they use a lot of well they use the whole animal usually if they have some kind of like an animal they will use the whole thing which i always appreciate and the lamb soup is being served in the head yeah, yeah, yeah they yeah. they do all the, the weird combinations and it's very it's like very lavish it's very fantastic 
you know. But I hear the show's been canceled because of they, Japan's economy sort of took a bit of a nosedive, and they can't afford those French wines anymore. Oh, They're no. Really oh, that's too I may bad. be wrong about that. Margaret Cho here, who uh, wants to speak the truth and does in her new film, Notorious C.H.O. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. MargaretCho.com and .net. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.